0: Well, I have three sons. It turns out that all three of them suffer from a particular hearing condition. It's a strange... you can probably guess what's coming. It's a strange condition characterised by an inability to hear certain words. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, Bill's cringing here, as I say. Sorry, Bill. (laughs) We can be happily talking about a a topic. It might be sport or politics or something. And then we change the subject to domestic matters. And Julia or I might say, Doug or Bill, would you mind doing the dishes? And mysteriously, they can't hear what we're saying. (laughs) Or we might say, could you clean the bathroom? Or could you vacuum the floor? And we might as well be speaking French or German. They can't speak French or German, by the way. Complete incomprehension. And then when I scratch my head and wonder what's going on, Julie reminds me that I too suffer from the same ailment. <laughs> my hearing is uh, is fine when, when Julie might say something like, dinner's ready, dear, or would you like a coffee? No problem there. But for some reason my brain just doesn't compute with something like, I think the lawn is ready to mow or the door on the bathroom cabinet needs fixing. Well, I discovered that this strange condition has a name. It's called selective hearing. For some reason, it seems to afflict a surprising number of males and it's something that we find in our passage today. We find that Saul has selective hearing When it comes to God's word. He obeyed God when it was convenient. But when it wasn't convenient, he chose not to listen. At the end of the day, Saul chose to please himself rather than obeying God. He's more concerned about what the people think of him than what God thinks of him. And so when his sin is found out, he's worried about saving face and honouring himself rather than sinning against God. And so the result of Saul choosing himself over choosing God is that God ends up rejecting Saul as king. I've got three points this morning, as usual. The first point is Saul's selective hearing. In this passage, there's a big emphasis on listening and obeying. In verse 1, it sets the tone. We've got our our Bible passages up here, so you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen. So verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. There's a reminder of how Saul came to be king. It was the Lord who anointed him. Now Saul, listen, says Samuel, to his word and obey. And that word is to go and attack the Amalekites, uh, men and totally destroy them, men, women, children and all their animals. Now why would God say to do that? Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. That's when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, escaping from Pharaoh and slavery and about to enter the promised land. We are told in Deuteronomy, don't turn to it, but we're told in Deuteronomy 25, that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites who were lagging behind while they were weary and that there was no fear of God in them. The Amalekites attacked them in an unprovoked act of war. And so we can see this is God bringing justice against the Amalekites. But we might ask, okay, fair enough, but what about the women and children? Surely they're the innocent victims in this. Why do they deserve to die? How is that just and fair? It's very difficult for us to get past our own perspective on justice. We are quite rightly horrified by the idea of innocent suffering and death, of deliberately killing people who aren't directly guilty. It's very much in the news today, isn't it? with the wars that are going on. But the trouble is, we also have a warped idea of what being innocent means. We naturally start with ourselves and say, we're basically okay, we're not too bad, we might not be perfect. But essentially, we don't deserve to die, we deserve human rights, we deserve life all the things that we cherish in a free society. And we think that's a default position for every human being. And from a human perspective, that is good and true. But from God's perspective, that's not our default position. In God's eyes, our default position is that we are sinners and we deserve death. Every one of us. Now the good news is that God is a loving God and full of grace and mercy. And so he makes sure that we don't get what we deserve. If we are willing, God holds out a lifeline to us to rescue us and redeem us in Jesus. But every now and again in the Bible we come across people who seem to be beyond rescuing. It seems that their opposition to God is so bad that they are beyond saving and the Amalekites are one of those people. God isn't being unjust in wiping them out. Their continued opposition to God and his people over generations was absolutely deserving of death. And Saul was to be God's instrument in bringing bringing that about. Trouble is, Saul finds it inconvenient to do that. He found it much more convenient to be selective in his hearing. So for some reason he decides to let the Amalekite king Agag live. He was quite happy to kill all the other people, but verse 9, Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. It seemed like Saul was rather keen on the idea of keeping the fat, juicy livestock for a big barbecue. Saul was into selective obedience, obeying as long as it was convenient. And friends, I want to suggest that we can be like that too, can't we? We can be all for obedience, following Jesus, as long as it's convenient. But the acid test is do we still obey when it costs? Do we still obey when it's inconvenient? If you're still at home living with your parents, how do you go with honouring your parents, not just when it's easy, but when it's hard? Well, when, when they say, we want you to come to that, this family dinner with that auntie who you just don't get on with, Or maybe you're married, you might be fine with the idea of serving your spouse, your wife or husband, as long as it's not too difficult. But how do you go when it's really costly? Cooking or or doing the dishes to give your spouse a break when you're dead tired yourself. Or for all of us, how do you go taking Jesus' commands about money seriously? Freely give as you have freely received. Not just when it's easy, not just when you have plenty, but when things are tight. When you've got to watch every penny yourself. How do you go with not looking to store up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven? How do you go with obeying no matter what? Not just when it's convenient. Well, back to our story. So Saul has selective hearing. When it comes to God's word for him, he selectively obeys, killing the people, but sparing the king and the best of the livestock. Saul may think that he can treat God's word how he likes and get away with it, but God isn't fooled and God will not be mocked. The word of God comes to a second time. Pick it up in verse 11. God says, I regret that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. I regret that I made Saul king. That might seem a, like a strange emotion for God to have, don't you think? Did, after all, didn't God know exactly how Saul was going to turn out? God can, knows exactly what's going to happen in the future, right? Yes, he did then how come he feels regret when all along he knew the way that things would turn out? Well, it's because God loves human beings passionately. When Saul or you and I are unfaithful and lie to God and cheat, on, uh, and cheat him, he, he responds with emotion. He's not not just unaffected by our sin like a block of wood. He grieves over Saul. And so does Samuel. Samuel is angry, verse 11, and cries out to God all night. Next morning, Samuel gets up to meet Saul. And we're given a little snippet of information that tells us a lot about Saul and where his heart is at the moment. Samuel is told, verse 12, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. There's an interesting contrast here to what Saul does after defeating the Amalekites and what happened after the previous battle with the Amalekites back in Moses' time. Moses, as we heard a moment ago, um, fought with the Amalekites when they came out of Egypt. They ended up, God gave them a victory. Moses responded after that in Exodus 17 by setting up an altar. And he called it, the Lord is my banner. Moses honoured God back then, set up an altar. Saul sets up a monument to himself in his own honour. Saul shows that he is very much about glorifying Saul for his own glory. Well, Samuel then finds Saul and he confronts Saul with his disobedience. The second point is that Saul responds by justifying his own sin. What we see in the interaction between Saul and Samuel is a tired, old series of lies that is as familiar as it is old. It's as old as history. It began in the garden way back when Adam and Eve first sinned. And it involves three features that follow sin around like a bad smell. Self-deception, blaming others, and isolation let's look at these one by one firstly self-deception Saul thinks that he has done a splendid job in obeying God he's like a little kid who can't wait to tell you how well he's done look at verse 13 when Samuel reached Saul Saul said the Lord bless you I have carried out the Lord's instructions he can't wait to tell Samuel What is done? Never mind the fact that Samuel, meanwhile, can hear the bleating of sheep and lowing of cattle, even as Saul is speaking. Then even after Samuel points out this fact, Saul says again, verse 20, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed all the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. As if keeping Agag alive was meant to impress Samuel after God had told him to kill him. Obeying part of the way, as far as it was convenient, was somehow somehow going to fool God. Saul was deluded, completely self-deceived by his own sin. And then he adds in verse 21 that the best of the livestock was kept to sacrifice to the Lord. Something God, by the way, didn't tell him to do. He just thought that was going to impress Samuel and somehow that was going to impress God. Well, secondly, Saul plays the blame game in trying to justify himself. Have a look at verse 20. We can see that Saul has a very selective use of the word I. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought Agag, their king, back. See how Saul is trying to take credit for the things, for the way that he did actually obey, except for the Agag bit. But then amazingly, when it came to keeping the best of the animals, it wasn't Saul who did that, but the men. Verse 21 The soldiers, not me, but the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted God, to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God, at Gilgal. Except for the bit about killing Agag, Saul is taking credit for all the bits where he did actually obey. But then he blames Saul's men for the other bits. As if Saul, the king, didn't have responsibility for what he did with the animals. As if he, he wasn't in control of everything that happened. Just like Adam did with Eve, Saul is passing the buck, blaming others for his sin. Then thirdly, Saul's sin leads to isolation, alienation and broken relationships. First and foremost, Saul cuts himself off from a relationship with God. Have a look at how Saul describes God in verse 15. Saul answered, They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. 21. The soldiers took sheep and cattle in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, our Gilgal. You see, Saul sees the Lord as Samuel's God, not his God. In the choices he's made to only obey as far as it suits him, Saul has made his choice, He's chosen himself over trusting in God. He's voted with his feet to push God away, to distance, to isolate himself from relationship with God. And then finally we see Saul becoming isolated also from Samuel. At the end of the chapter we see once again that God regretted making Saul king, but then Samuel grieved as well, 35 Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. Not only had Saul cut himself off from God, but also from his greatest source of human support that Saul had. Because Samuel was Saul's defender and champion, despite his misgivings about giving Israel a king in the first place. When Samuel was told to anoint Saul as king, every step of the way he supported Saul, even as he could see Saul falling apart. Samuel was God's representative, the spiritual force behind Saul's kingship. And Saul self-sabotaged all of that. One of the reasons why God's word in these Old Testament stories, like 1 Samuel, is so powerful is that it acts as a mirror for our lives. We can see ourselves in the characters, can't we, as we read the stories? And as much as we might not like it, there are things that we can see in ourselves in the way Saul responds to his sin one of those is how quick we can be to play the blame game as well we can blame our circumstances we can say i know it was wrong to say those things to her but you don't know how much pressure i've been under Blame my circumstances. Or I know I shouldn't watch porn, but these images just keep popping up on my computer. They're in my face. I I, I just can't help it. And then we we can be quick to blame other people for our sin, to pass the buck. Yeah, I know it's wrong to treat him like that, but you don't know how hard he is to live with. And then tragically... We see in the mirror the isolation that sin can lead to in our lives as well. The person who ends up leaving church because it's too hard to reconcile a broken relationship. Or those who might stay at church but withdraw from CG and gradually withdraw from coming on Sunday or for going out with their friends to to lunch after church because it's too hard to be in a group with that person that you just can't be reconciled with. And it's all too easy for resentment and hurt to fester and for you to harden your heart to others and to God as well. Well, back to Saul and our story. Saul is found out for his sin. But instead of being sorry that he sinned against God and disobeying and responding by repenting, turning away from sin, Saul is sorry, all right, but he's sorry for himself. It seems at first that Saul is genuinely sorry. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. But then he goes on, verse 25. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Notice who Saul is asking forgiveness from. It's not God, is it? But Samuel. Samuel. You see, for Saul, sin is a matter of how it affects his relationships with other people. Not with God, but with other people. That's where his focus is. That's who Saul's concerned about. He's concerned about saving face with other people. And that comes through even more clearly in what follows. So Samuel refuses to go with Saul to all the people because Saul has rejected the word of God. Samuel then turns to leave, but Saul is desperate. He grabs onto his robe and he tears his robe. Verse 30, Samuel replied, Saul replied, sorry, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. I have sinned, he says, But that's not Saul's real concern. And that's shown by the but that comes next. But please honour me before the elders and the people. We've seen before that Samuel was the one who gave Saul a sense of spiritual legitimacy of authority. He was the one who anointed Saul and publicly declared him to be king. Samuel being seen with Saul was vital for Saul's uh, power and stability before the people as king. He was a legitimate ruler with God's own prophet by his side. So Saul was desperate for Samuel to continue to be seen by his side. It's not disobeying God and sinning against him that Saul's worried about. It's keeping up appearances. It's about saving face, not being shamed. Saul's major concern is what people think of him. True repentance is when we don't care about saving face, where we don't care about keeping up appearances. Because what we care about is getting right with God. And friends, when we sin, the test of whether we're truly sorry and whether we truly repent of our sin is whether or not we're concerned about the optics whether or not we're concerned about how we look in front of the church or in front of our family, in front of others. Are you more concerned about your reputation of having things together, of appearing to be faithful and godly than what God thinks of you? Saul did admit to Samuel that he'd sinned, but the but that followed showed that he wasn't genuine. But please honour me. A good litmus test for us of whether we take sin seriously or not is whether or not we add a but to our confession. God, I have sinned, but. But please don't let my parents find out. But don't let me lose my job. But don't ask me to talk to her to ask for forgiveness. True repentance is saying, God, I have sinned full stop and letting the consequences fall where they may. Well, after Saul tears Samuel's robe and begs him to go back with him to the people, Samuel relents and goes with him. And Samuel finishes the job that Saul failed to do. He brings the very much still alive Agag um, out and he puts him to death with the sword. Then we're told Samuel goes home and he grieves over Saul. And then the final words of the chapter, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so the light goes out on Saul. He's still king for a while, but he's done and dusted as far as God is concerned about any spiritual authority that he has. His kingship is basically dead and buried. A sad, pathetic ending to Israel's hope in a human king. And Saul's failure adds another layer to the graveyard of Israel's desperate failure to live up to their calling as a nation. And and with it, the desperate failure of their leaders to follow God and to lead the people to God. Since Moses and Joshua, there's been a pretty depressing Congo line of failed leaders, one after the other, living out that, those famous lines from the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king and they all did what was right in their own eyes. But now Israel did have a king and things were no better. It's as if the author of 1 Samuel and, in fact, the, the whole Old Testament um, put together is parading us through all the human options of spiritual and political leadership and helping us to see that the cupboard is bare. Judges, priests, kings, they all come up short. But surely God has a plan to bring his people back and for them to become who they're meant to be. It would have to be a king who was the opposite of Saul, wouldn't it? It would have to be a king who, instead of building monuments to himself, humbled himself. It would have to be a king who, instead of obeying when it suited him, obeyed when it cost him, to the point of costing his own life. It would have to be a king who, instead of manipulating others and using his people for his own power, became a king who serves out of love. He would have to be a king who is willing and able to save his people by his own righteousness and faithfulness. He would need a king. We would need a king who saves us. And as he dies at our hands, instead of blaming us, We need a king who bears our guilt and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they have done. Let's pray. Father, as the lights go out on Saul and his kingship, we see uh, ourselves and our own weakness and our own failings in Saul. And as, uh, as we look at the book of Judges and ask where to now, where is their hope we too ask where is our hope we thank you Father that, that um, longing for a king, for a right, righteous king who can save his people has been met has been met in the Lord Jesus and that we have a king who did obey we had a king who obeyed to the point of death And Father, we have benefited from that death and we thank you so much that Jesus was willing to die for us, that he was willing to lay aside his own power, he was willing to lay aside his own benefit, his own comfort, his own convenience for our sake so that we could be freed from our isolation, we could be freed from the effects of our sin and that we can come into relationship with you and know you and be loved by you and love you forever. Amen.